and welcome to Puglisi Associates Podcast. I'm Rocco Puglisi, and I'm pleased to be joined today by House Majority Whip Kerry Benioff from Center County. Welcome, Kerry, and I'd like to start with some personal background about you for our listeners. Growing up and living in Center County, you have an interesting background and entrance into politics as Center County Coroner. It would be interesting to understand more about your original decision to go into politics and what it has meant to you since first being elected to the House of Representatives in 1996. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, it's probably easier for me now to look back and answer that question. Had you asked me that question earlier in my life, I probably would not have been. But I often times reflect back on those little aptitude tests you take in school. And they want to know what you're good at and try to give some direction in college. And mine always rounded about dealing with people. And I never realized that that would take me down the path of politics. But ironically, in high school, I actually got elected president of the United States, which is a fearful thought. But uh, no one else in the class wanted to do it. But through government, some were lobbyists and some were senators and some were house members. We went through a very simple process, but well done by a teacher I had in those days. And it was just intrigued by the process. This is how Americans settle their differences. We have a democratic process. And even at that young age, I thought it was intriguing. Fast forward, I started working when I was 11 years old uh, for money. And I uh, always enjoyed work. And I remember working for this doctor's wife, and she was a pretty tough nut. But she really taught me how to work hard in addition to my mother. You remember, I'm one of five children, so my mother had to find a way to keep four bad boys busy. And so we did work a lot. And I enjoyed work. I started uh, in the construction business at uh, 17. I had to get working papers in order to do so. And in return, I've learned trades that I still use today. I buy houses, fix them up, just because I like to rebirth them. I don't want to see them go to waste. I don't want to see them fall apart. But I got to the point where in the construction business, I jokingly say, I kept, saying, see, kept seeing the same ugly five guys every day. And when wintertime would roll around, you're standing out there with no gloves trying to run table saws, and your hands were so cold you were lucky you didn't cut anything off, I started thinking, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? And I took an opportunity and actually got a job at a local hospital. My sister worked there, and she said, you ought to apply for an orderly job. You're a people kind of guy. And on my first interview, I remember the last question a nursing supervisor asked me. She said, How do you think uh, you're going to do taking orders from your sister? Because your sister's already been here seven years. Whether I was being flip or smart aleck at 19 years old, I said, well, I've been taking orders for her for 17 years, and you're willing to pay me. And she hired me right there on the spot. One of the best jobs I ever had. I learned a ton of things as an orderly. I learned about uh, medical things, but I also realized how much I liked working with people. Young and old, seniors have always been an affection of mine, as well as uh, helping out young children. I ran for county coroner as a part-time job at the hospital. I was doing autopsies in addition to being an orderly. I would do this in the morning from 8 to 12, clean up the morgue, do everything I needed to do, and then I had to be showered and on the floor to work as an orderly from 2.30 until 11.30 at night. And I would get cowled out all night long um, in order to do these in the morning. And then my predecessor in the coroner's office said, hey, Carrie, you're pretty knowledgeable. I need another deputy. Would you be interested in being one of my deputies? Well, it's an appointed position. So at probably 24 years old, I was appointed as a deputy coroner to work for my predecessor and did that for seven years. And then he had a massive heart attack. And he survived, but I took over the office. So I was working full-time, running the coroner's office, going out in calls all night long half the time. Sometimes I go out on a Friday and not come back to Sunday and still maintain my full-time job at the hospital. And somehow I managed to have several children in the interim. 
so life was pretty busy, and he came to me and he said, Carrie, you know, I look at your reports and they're a lot more medically oriented in the verbiage and things that you use, DNA's coming along. I just, as an older funeral director, I've been in this job for 34 years, I just don't know if I want to do it anymore. So I didn't really have much choice. I was either going to probably be booted as a deputy with the next guy coming in. I was 29 years old and said, what the heck, I'll run for office. Didn't really know what all that entailed, but I scrounged up 100 bucks from my mother-in-law to put my name on a ballot, got my petition signed, and lo and behold, in a seven-way race, we were successful. Got reelected in the following term. That would have been in 95 and 96, the House Representative job came open, and my local party said, Carrie, you're one of the up-and-comers in the party. You're working hard. You help set up a lot of our picnics. Help us find a candidate. So I said, all right. So I marched all over Center County trying to find a candidate because we were the larger portion of the 171st district in those days. And as time went on and closer we got to nomination period, we didn't have a candidate. And then some of the locals had called Harrisburg and said, we think this guy should be the candidate. Well, they sent some different individuals up, I think even a former majority whip, to see me and interview me. And I remember the one guy saying, wow, I'm surprised. You're not like what I thought you'd be. I anticipated they all thought corners were all old, fat, bald guys or something. Not that I'm not on my way there now, but uh, the reality is people have this funny perception about coroners because their only perception is what they've seen on either Quincy on TV or maybe the coroner in The Wizard of Oz, but they don't understand. It's actually an interesting elected position. It's the oldest elected position in the country. It goes back 800 years to old English law and where they were appointed by the crown. And unfortunately, at one point, it became very corrupt because the king realized that the coroner had control over someone's assets. So the decedent's assets, if they had anything, would generally become the possession of the king. And in a case where somebody didn't die of natural causes, the king had the opportunity to actually get the assets of the accused and the deceased. So if you were accused of a malicious crime in those days, your chances of ever getting off are probably pretty minimal considering you were helping to finance the king's crusades. So as time went on, fortunately, the office became more professional. But a lot of the verbiage that we use even here in the legislature comes from old English law. So eventually, I got the uh, push to run for state representative for two reasons. One, I was working as county coroner, and I had a particular case where a young lady had left from Penn State, going home on break, like most do. And on her way home, she noticed a traffic jam and pulled off the side of the road into the grassy berm, like most would, and some others had. And somebody else was coming down behind her not long after that. She's in the grass, just kind of stretching, looking around. Anyhow, this person came down there very fast, did not see her or the fact that there was a, a pile of cars that were stopped and they hit her and killed her. And months later in the courtroom, because I'm required by law to do a for, formal tox screen and a blood alcohol, where the driver of the car that hit her was only required to have a blood alcohol, the defense attorney tried to, in my opinion, make her partially liable for her own death. And he made said a sentence, something along the lines of, well, you know, we don't know what she was really doing in the grass. People say she was stretching, but as far as we know, she was under the influence of marijuana, so she couldn't have chasing a pink elephant. Uh, what most people, and especially jurors, don't realize is marijuana can stay in your bloodstream a long time, and it has a long half-life, and even if it's a trace, you could use it a week before and still have a fundamental trace in there. But the defense attorney, very keenly, was just trying to muddy up the waters and say, well, she's partially responsible for her own problem here. That angered me, and it really angered me when I saw the anguish on the family's face to see uh, trying to get some adjudication for the loss of their daughter to have their daughter, in my opinion, in their opinion, re-victimized in that courtroom. And I thought, you know, as coroner, I deal with everything at the end of every equation. I don't really 
have the opportunity to prevent things or make things better. I'm always delivering bad news, so maybe I should run. So I made the fatal mistake going to my town mayor, his name's Stan. I said, hey, Stan, the party wants me to run for state rep. And due to his powerful support, he said, oh, my God, don't do that. You're going to get killed. He said, the other guy has $110,000 in a bank. He's a county commissioner, blah, blah, blah. Well, what Stan didn't realize is I'm a former wrestler. And the last thing you don't do with a former wrestler is tell them they can't do anything because it makes us want to do things twice as much. So everything else is history. We ran. We did not have a primary. He didn't have a primary. I ran very, very hard, knocked on 18,762 doors. The number sticks with me through life. But, you know, people realized that I was very interested and I worked hard. And I ran because I thought, you know what, I know what I believe in. I know what I'm willing to stand up for. And I know what I'm willing to sacrifice to lose a job for. So I ran. I had four children at the time, and I wanted to make sure they had a better future. And subsequently, we're now doing this interview. So for a shorter answer, well, we'll work on that next time. Well, thank you. I learn a lot about you in these last several minutes. That's pretty interesting. I'm, I'm curious, getting back to that family who had to deal with the loss of their daughter, what happened at that case? Now, the gentleman was convicted of um, her death, but I believe that the level of his conviction was probably less, probably an involuntary manslaughter or something along those lines. So granted, he was not in on the influence of alcohol. Right. It was not a premeditate type thing. But nonetheless, I always kind of felt like I was the voice of the decedent. And our job when we did investigations to try to make sure you get every piece of evidence you can. You have one time to do this and do it right. The defense attorney only has to make a little bit of doubt in someone's mind. And so I always felt paramount that we had to do our job 1,000% well. And in the same token, you know, you have a parent or parents sitting in a courtroom. They don't really get to say anything. They sit there and they listen to both sides of everything. And I would try not to look at the parents too often because their anguish, you would feel it. But in return, it drove me to keep working. Well, thank you. So now you are the House Republican Majority Whip. And uh, you were recently elected. Yes. Your peers. So tell me about the race and tell me about, for our listeners, what a whip does, whether it's minority or majority, what a whip does, and, you know, what does that mean for you personally with the number of uh, years experience in the House of Representatives being elected by your peers to be the whip? It's a great question, Rocco, and I would tell you a quick summation of this. It's truly an honor. You don't take anything for granted. I've been here for a little while and was lucky enough to get elected as a policy chairman, but it's just like any other type of team like a football team or some other sport, you have those that will lead the squad. And I like to believe that we try to do the same thing. Obviously, we have to reflect the majority of the opinions of our caucus members. But I would be remiss to not say that I really take it as a badge of honor, and I don't take it very lightly. So what did that mean? What that that truly means for you personally from being the former policy chair and now the House Majority Whip from a time perspective? The role changes from the perspective I'm not probably traveling a state as much as I did as policy and hosting hearings on a multitude of issues, whether requested by some of the members or something that was parallel with our own agenda, where a lot of our work is a little bit more internal. 
a little more intimate with the leader's office. You are really kind of the leader uh, assistant and providing support for him on different agenda items. If he needs to step off the house floor, you need to be there. And in return, you know, we've appointed our own deputy whips, which are also fellow members, guys and gals, to assist us in this count. The goal was to make sure we know that we have the votes to pass something. More importantly, when we're not in session, our goal is to try to keep members up to date and educated about critical votes and trying to make them feel comfortable with legislation that's coming down the pike. So when we get into caucus, that we have a general idea. If something seems to go awry in caucus, it is our job to make sure we understand that maybe we don't have the support for this issue. Maybe we need to put this bill on hold for a day, go around, make sure the members are secure and educated about what it is they're going to vote for. How many uh, assistant whips do you have in the caucus? Uh, I believe about 15. 15 deputy whips. Interesting. So and we pick them by regions, regions and some of them by tenure and just, you know, I, I see skills in people. Mm-hmm. And I would say that I'm pretty blessed with some pretty good people as my deputies. Okay. So from a issue perspective, what as being the whip, helping out the leader, uh, Brian Cutler, in terms of running the agenda on a day-to-day basis when you're in session, What do you think are the key issues that the House Republican Caucus, aside from the budget, of course, wishes to tackle in the first uh, six months of session? Well, first of all, I think the key issue for us is going to have trust. I feel like I earned people's trust to get here, and now i got to keep their trust and maintain their trust to be upfront and honest with them on issues. I say the same thing to anyone comes in my office. You be honest with me, I'll be honest with you. Whether I could be with you or can't. Uh, that unwritten trust factor is very important. And in return, as we start working on our agenda, obviously we're very interested in continuing to grow Pennsylvania's economy. And I see that as multifaceted. To have a strong economy, I believe you've got to have a good workforce. And a good workforce has to be educated, uh, not just in academia, but in educated in what the needs are of the population and the business community for the next 10, 20 years. We can graduate a lot of people out of higher education institutions, but if they're graduating degrees where we don't have a job, then we're not doing our job properly. I believe that the greatest testament to a quality education is somebody that's employed five, ten years after they graduate. So I believe our agenda is going to be around economic development, making Pennsylvania more attractive, and some of that's going to have to be through good tax policy. I had a tax study um, commissioned last year by the Tax Foundation in Washington to look at Pennsylvania's entire tax code, see what we're doing well, see what we could be doing better, but more importantly, what's going to make us competitive, not only this year, but 10 years, 20 years down the road. The reality is our tax code is antiquated. We're trying to operate in the 21st century on a tax code that's reflective of the 20th century. We are no longer just a widget, gadget-making society. We are a service community, and we need to be upfront with ourselves on that. But most importantly, when you have companies like Amazon that want to come to Pennsylvania or at least looking at us, they don't get a second look when they see how high our corporate net income tax rate is. It's just ridiculous, and I think it's a shame because we have a great state. We have good quality workers when we get them trained properly. We have an infrastructure that we've been doing chronic repairs on. We're investing $3.2 billion every year on our infrastructure, airways, railway, and roadways and bridges. That's a good thing for people that are searching for bringing businesses, and more importantly, keeping the businesses are here. But a bad tax code, high litigation, high health insurance costs, and a poorly trained workforce will put you you know, in the whack. And we just need to do better. You know, one of the things of being around Harrisburg, a long time 
it appears that the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has so many job training programs. And the legislature has tried numerous times to try to simplify the whole job training programs. But for some reason, we're still at a situation where individuals that need the job training, bona fide job training, it's very difficult to find the appropriate viable training program. Why is that? I think everybody wants to be king of the hill and every governor comes in wants to be able to pound their chest and say they did better than the prior one. Uh, frankly, I think there's some great private sector in, institutions that are doing a good job of those things, and I think that's where government needs to step aside and assist them, get out of their way. I still believe, and I'm an example of that, some of the best training ground is actually getting a job. One of the things I think we did as a nation that really kind of hurt our young people is we made it impossible for a young person to deliver newspapers. One of the greatest, greatest entrepreneurial opportunities was for a young person to deliver newspapers. Get up, got to have it there at a certain time. When I was a kid, when you did that, you had to collect your own fares from the individual, and you had to bill them, and you had to reimburse the newspaper, and then they'd sell you your portion of that. Great program. I believe that we need to be supporting our vocational technical schools to the best of our abilities, and we need to be listening to the business leaders around our community and economic development. What is it you need? What is it you need today, tomorrow, and 10 years down the road? Okay, thank you. So looking at the session, which commenced in January, and going in terms of budget hearings, budget negotiation, the governor has um, requested a increase the minimum wage as one of the examples that the administration would like to see occur. From your perspective and a perspective of the caucus, uh, where do you see the House of Representatives? Well, first of all, if your listeners think, as you know, a governor cannot introduce legislation. He can introduce ideas, and I think that's important that people know that because there are separations uh, of duties. Should, and I suspect there will be several proposals to introduce an increase. Uh, frankly, my goal is to let every Pennsylvania earn as much money as they possibly can and giving them the opportunities to do that. You know, set some arbitrary rate. What's an arbitrary rate that's the right rate? You know, currently it's a $7.50 an hour. Do I think somebody could sustain a, a family on that? No, but for the most part, these are seasonal jobs. These are part-time jobs. Uh, these are starting positions. And frankly, that's where you're getting some of the soft skills that we need. I did a jobs tour as a policy chairman last year, did 12 different sites, talking to educators, economic developers, business owners, et cetera. And one of the common themes that we did not expect to hear was, we need a workforce with the soft skills. We expected to hear the comments about taxation. We expected to hear comments on regulatory overreach by government. But every single hearing, the consistent message is, we need a workforce with simple soft skills. And soft skills meaning show up, show up on time, dress appropriately, know how to answer a phone, now do a simple outline, and not disappear after you get your first paycheck. I have a welding uh, friend of mine back home. He says, I offer it $35 an hour. He said, and I can't keep them more than a week. And sadly, as much as nobody wants to talk about it, the drug problem is significant. And trying to get 35 applicants for a lot of jobs, and if you can get four of them clean, you're lucky. And so that really is diminishing the opportunities for these people. The minimum wage, all it does is guarantee that someone's going to spend more money and not necessarily guaranteeing any more quality. 
you know, any business only has a certain amount of money to pay their employees. I want to reward the person who's working hard, shows up extra, doesn't clock out as soon as the clock hits five o'clock, but finishes their job. That person should be rewarded and elevated and not just elevate somebody economically because they're coming and putting eight hours in. I tell my staff all the time, my goal is if I die tomorrow, one of you could take over and we don't miss a beat. And the people in our district are continuously to be served. You know, I watch people come from other countries. I've had them come into my own district, set up these businesses. And I'm always admiring the fact that you see them there, sun up to sundown, because they want to be prosperous and they want to be successful. And I'm not saying everybody wants to work sun up to sundown, but I see them in their Saturdays. I see them in their Sunday. Sometimes they have their children with them as they're doing their books. They understand the opportunities that they have. And you know what? The sky's the limit. They know if they're willing to put the effort forth, they can earn uh, a good income. My goal as a legislator is to not be setting some arbitrary fee, in this particular case, doubling the minimum wage, guaranteeing a certain wage. Uh, I want to be encouraging people to want to reach farther than that. Do you see the minimum wage uh, increase issue as a potential compromise uh, to be consistent with or to be aligned with the general fund budget. For example, your senator uh, from Center County uh, indicated that you may want to look at that, uh, not to the level that the governor has proposed, but something slightly above the current uh, minimum wage. How do you see that? As we round out the budgetary talks, I believe anything and everything will be on the table. Do I believe that they could reach a, an agreement and get something on the minimum wage? I suspect. It depends on how much the uh, political, um, what's our word I want, um, chits that the governor is going to want to expend on this issue. He's got some other issues that are significant to him. But we are in a business of compromise. Not everyone gets exactly what they want. Uh, I do not believe that we're going to see something go to twelve fifty an hour or $15 an hour. But I would say on a sidebar, I have a lot of convenience stores in my area that are advertising starting wages at $11 an hour, 401k, and even some high school, pardon me, some college fund assistance after you pass a course. That's what I want to see in the private sector. I want to see that kind of entrepreneurial uh, carrot put in front of somebody saying, listen, you come here. We're going to start you at this point. I think the shift manager is at 13 something an hour. And uh, they stick around long enough, they can get part of their college paid. I think assisting private sector businesses to help people be all they can be is where government needs to be. Another issue that I believe your caucus and I believe also the Senate Republican Caucus have uh, put forth such as work requirements of receiving uh, grants from the Commonwealth. Is that something that is a strong, viable issue that the your caucus will be trying to push forward? I assume you're talking about the welfare to work initiatives. Yes. Yes. Now we predominantly in our caucus, and I think Senate as well. We we believe that there's a lot of pride in working, and we want to make sure people feel that pride. You know, it's funny. I still have the first pay stub when I was working for two ninety-five an hour as a contractor's assistant, and I always wanted to hold on to that because I want to remember those days when I took home eighty-nine dollars for a forty-hour work week. I think there's a lot of pride in earning a paycheck, and I want every family to be able to come home, regardless of the size of their family, whether they're single, whether they're married, whether they have one kid or five kids. The pride of being able to show your husband, your spouse, your child that you earn this. 
And in return, if we provide public assistance, I think there's some expectation that it is assistance. It is to help you through a tough time, whether it's marital loss, health care problem, uh, downsizing in a job, whatever it is, uh, we are here to help you, but we want to help you up into the next step. We want to get you back to employment. We want you to be able to have that pride that you have earned a paycheck, not just getting a check because the government's here to hand it out. In return, I think that's the greatest teaching tool that we can offer parents to show their children. Great. Thank you. So, you know, as the state legislator, House Majority Rep, and a father, what are issues important to you? Obviously, quality of education and opportunities for good jobs. Uh, I think the Commonwealth has stepped up in some of the safe school initiatives and tried to provide some additional funding for our schools. Nobody should have to be worrying about their children, their loved one, or their their, um, husband, daughter going to a school and have to be unsafe. And unfortunately, society has had some changes, and I think we're trying to be very responsive to that. I am very concerned, obviously, about the opioid addiction problem as former county coroner. I don't remember seeing these types of things, and not to the magnitude that we see now. Department of Health will tell you we're losing 15 people a day. Well, 15 people a day, by my math, is about 300-some a month. That's like a jumbo jet going down every month in your state of Pennsylvania. You know, these are people that are normally healthy otherwise. And for some reason, they got addicted to these drugs, uh, not necessarily always illicit drugs. We've got to reverse it. It is just a tremendous waste of life. And it's a tremendous expense, and sadly, it's also imposing upon our EMS and police services. Now, some of the drugs coming in from another country is called carfentanil, which is a synthetic form of fentanyl, has um, other antidotes and ingredients added to it. Some of them, let's say, is an elephant tranquilizer. It is so bad that just touching it through osmosis, you can get very sick and or ill or possibly even die, the absorption through your skin. So now we're putting our EMS people at peril. We're putting our police, first-time responders, generally the first ones to get on scene at peril. If someone's comatose or out of it, uh, maybe even unresponsive without uh, respirations, they are expected to react and try to resuscitate this individual, even at their own peril. We are spending $1,000 a hit every time we go out to Narcan somebody. That's a drug uh, that reverses these things. We've had people wake up angry because they were taken out of their high, in some cases even driving off with the EMS person in the car trying to resuscitate them. Uh, We are not required to force these people to go to the hospital, and in return our EMS system is out responding sometimes two and three times a week to the same person who is overdosed indirectly by using these drugs. To me, it's a health epidemic for our country. It's not limited to just Pennsylvania, and it is a terrible impediment on families, our judicial system, and frankly, it is, uh, you know, really hurting the workforce. These are people that we should be, are healthy, and should be out gainfully employed, but they're not. Okay. Thank you. So, from, um, in terms of this session, or one would you say this year, What are the issues that you think will be problematic and maybe other issues you feel that that there's a possibility of being enacted? Well, we never know unforeseen types of things, obviously. I'm somewhat confident that we have a governor's office and the legislature that would like to get a budget done on time without any significant tax increases, so that's a good starting point. Uh, Obviously, some of these unforeseen things, uh, we never know what's going to happen there. I I do think there's some differing opinions on some issues, Uh, obviously the minimum wage one being part of that. 
I think we can find common ground in trying to get good education across our commonwealth, not just in higher education, but vocational technical schools. I, I think the um, politics, uh, that's a little bit even above us. I think there's other forces that are trying to come in and manipulate in the redistricting issue. Uh, we saw how the court stepped in there. Uh, it's never easy trying to strike a balance between the three legislative branches with the governor's office and the judicial branch, but they're paramount. I've often been uh, starstruck by how bright our forefathers were 200-some years ago when they put this structure together and how sometimes we are well, wandering away from that. There was a distinctive reason why you should have a uh, separation of these powers, and I'm getting more and more concerned when the judicial branch is stepping in and overriding things that the legislature, who was elected by the people to represent them, and a good one being the venue change. You know, when a, someone has been egregious in their community, whether it's through a medical malpractice issue or whatever reason, they have the right to have their court day. But they also should be trying these things in the localities and where this occurred and not have high-paid attorneys shopping for a venue of a jury in communities that have a history of paying high wages out in these settlements, probably high settlements, not wages. And I, I think it's paramount that what we passed almost 12 years ago was a compromise by all parties involved in these types of lawsuits to say, hey, we want to do what's best for our community, best for the person that may have been injured or aggrieved in one way or another without breaking the bank and our closing institutions down, and therefore they should be tried in the area that the incident occurred. And now for the courts to try to step in and reverse that, I, I think that's a very bad strike against democracy, and I would hope that the public would sit up and say, wait a minute, we have a legislature for a reason, and you have the ability to remove us every two years if you don't like what we're doing. But that system worked pretty darn good for 11 years, and arbitrarily you get a new panel of judges elected, and they think they can reverse that. That's wrong. So I, I think those types of oversteps of power really are dangerous to our democracy as a whole. Thank you. You know, you mentioned something about uh, compromise, consensus, and one of the criticisms of previous sessions that there was a lack of compromise, a lack of going across the aisle, and even a lack of communication and consensus with the other chamber. How do you see that um, evolve from previous sessions to this current session? Well, I'll talk about from this perspective, uh, from this current session's perspective, and I think it's going to start off with the fact that uh, Brian Cutler, myself, and the rest of the leadership team, I believe, communicate very well together, and I think it starts with having good communication. I think Brian is trying to identify along with us a specific agenda. We've talked about having theme weeks and we'll work on specific issues for a week or two, whatever it's going to take uh, to get them done. But whether it's the Democrats in the House or the members in the Senate, everybody should kind of know that next week's going to be regulatory reform week. The following week or two could be on taxation. Another one could be on workforce development. But they'll have a general idea where we're going in conjunction with the budget. I think that in itself, and having somewhat of an outline and having good communication within our own caucus and with the Democrats, doesn't mean we're all saying, so, probably hold hands and get along and vote yes on everything together, but at least to have a heads up of what's going to run. They can prepare themselves whether they want to support them and don't support them. And in return, we'll do the same thing with our Senate. 
I'm not a fool. I realize when you have more than two people in the room, you're going to have at least three opinions on everything. That uh, trying to get two or three people to agree is not that easy. But you know what? We're not in the business of exact science. We're in the business of compromise. We need 102 votes in the House, 26 in the Senate, and obviously the approval of a governor. I think we're off to a good start because of some of those changes. I have a very good alliance with Representative Cutler, our majority leader, and I'm trying to be very supportive of him and things that he wants to work on. He's a very bright guy, and I want to see him be successful because his success means our caucus is successful. Thank you. Well, Kerry, thank you uh, for your time today and sharing your thoughts and perspective with me as well as our listeners. Uh, good luck in the discussions and budget negotiations ahead. We hope to see an impactful and meaningful session. That concludes Puglisi Associates podcast for today. We hope that our listeners enjoy our periodic podcast as we share a unique perspective with Pennsylvania leaders that are committed to the growth and prosperity of Pennsylvania. Thanks again, Kerry, and it's been great talking with you today. Thank you very much for having us. As you can see, I'm still energetic, and I love the job, and I love the service, and thanks for taking time to talk to us about it. Well, it really shows. Thank you.